Before all things, before time began, there was God, uncreated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect unity. To display His glory, God created all things, the heavens, the earth, the greater light, the lesser light. He created the seas and the dry land. He brought forth trees, plants, and all living things, and in His own image, He created man. Though the greatness of God is unsearchable and incomprehensible, He speaks. God speaks to us through His Word so that we can know Him and love Him. Through the stories and lives of those found in the book of Genesis, we see the goodness and glory of God. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and they lived in perfect fellowship with God. But when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and broke God's law, sin entered into the world, and that perfect fellowship with God was fractured. After being dispelled from the Garden, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. They each brought sacrifices to the Lord. Abel's offering pleased him, but Cain's offering did not. Anger and jealousy burned inside of Cain, so much so that he rose up and killed his brother Abel. Adam and Eve had a third son, Seth, who had many more descendants, one of whom was Noah. One day, God came to Noah and told him that he was going to flood the earth because mankind had turned from him. Noah built an ark out of gopher wood, and God protected Noah and his family as he sent a great flood to the earth. After the flood, people again turned away from God. One of Noah's descendants, Abraham, and his wife Sarah were chosen by God and given a promise that God would provide a means of salvation through the line of Abraham. Sarah was barren but that would not stop God's purposes from being fulfilled. After growing impatient, waiting for God's promise of a son, Sarah sent her servant, Hagar, to bear a child with Abraham. His name would be Ishmael. Many difficult times fell upon the servant Hagar and her son, yet God always provided for them. God, staying faithful to his promise, gave a son to Abraham and Sarah, and his name was Isaac. One day, to test Abraham's faith, God asked him to build an altar and sacrifice his son. Abraham demonstrated great faith and obeyed, but at the last moment, God spared Isaac by providing a different sacrifice. Isaac married a woman named Rebekah, and God blessed them with twins, Jacob and Esau. Just as God had foretold, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Through all of this, God's providence and plan prevailed. After stealing Esau's birthright, Jacob fled from his home. He met Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and desired to marry her. But he was tricked into marrying her older sister, Leah. Leah was overlooked and hated by many. Yet God loved her and cared for her. Jacob had 12 sons who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. His favorite son was Joseph, and he loved him so much that he gave Joseph a special robe with many colors. 
His brothers hated Joseph for this, and they sold him into slavery. Even in the midst of these dark times, God was near to Joseph, and he did not forsake him. Joseph worked his way out of slavery, but after being falsely accused, he was sent to prison. He began interpreting dreams, and when news of this gift reached Pharaoh, he called Joseph out of prison and asked him to interpret his dream, which foretold a famine in Egypt. Because of Joseph's gift, Egypt was saved from the famine. The land of Joseph's brothers was eventually affected by the famine. They journeyed to Egypt to find resources, and they were reconciled with their brother. They feared retaliation, but Joseph forgave them and reminded them of God's providence. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Ultimately, the book of Genesis teaches us about the creation and fall of mankind as we turn away from our Creator. But the story doesn't end there. God, in His grace and mercy, has made a way for salvation through His Son, Christ Jesus. And in so doing, He is rescuing His people from sin and bondage and bringing them into everlasting life. Welcome to Rock Point. My name is Destin. I'm going to wrap this whole sermon. No, I'm just messing. <clears throat> I'll leave the rapping to you guys. <laughs> I'm much better at it than I am. Uh, I've been on staff here seven years. This is my first time to be in the house with many of my here. They are phenomenal. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. <clears throat> I will open with a joke, though, so I think you'll like this one. Uh, there was a young boy who was born. Uh, his parents were wealthy beyond imagination, one of the wealthiest people in the entire world. So this young boy is born. He grows up in this household. Incredible, incredible young man. He, uh, he walks at the age of two months old and talks at four months old and uh, six months old, he's potty trained, right? Just an incredible son. And so when he turns five years old, his mom and his dad, who have all the money in the world, they said, you know what, we are going to buy you whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You just name it. I got it. I got the money. So they go to their son and they tell him this, right? And so the son thinks about it. He goes, okay, I know what I want. <clears throat> I want a thousand pink ping pong balls. Dad's like, really? That, that's what you want? That, okay, you're five years old. That's weird. I get it. We'll give you a thousand ping, ping pong balls. The kid goes into school, does a great job in school, right? Makes all good grades. He's on the athletics team and does a great job there. He comes 16 years old. They're so proud of their son, right? And so the dad comes to him and his mom and they said, we are going to buy you a car for your 16th birthday. You name it. Lambo, Ferrari, Tesla. It doesn't matter, right? We are going to get it for you. What do you want, son? And the son says, well, I've really been thinking, and maybe instead of a car, I was really hoping I could have a thousand pink ping pong balls. Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, that's why, okay, here it is, fine, take it. Right, he graduates high school, aces the SAT, aces the ACT, phenomenal valedictorian of his class, gets a full ride scholarship to the best university, Baylor. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> maybe it wasn't Baylor, I don't know. Anyways, and so the dad comes to him again, the mom, and they say, whatever you want, son, you can have this. And he says, I want another thousand pink ping pong balls. And this happens all through his life, right? He gets married, a thousand pink ping pong balls. Has his first child, a thousand pink ping pong balls. Finally, the son comes down with a rare disease. He's in the hospital. He's only got a few weeks to live. The dad flies to see his son. And they're sitting there talking. And the dad leans in and says, son, I just, I've always wanted to know. 
why in the world, when we had all the money, you could have cars and houses, why did you want a thousand pink ping pong balls? And the son leans into his dad and says, Dad, I'm so glad you asked. The reason I wanted a thousand pink ping pong balls is because, and he takes his last breath. That's it. That's the joke. <laughs> you probably don't like that joke. <laughs> and the reason you don't like that joke is because it has no point whatsoever, right? It's just a waste of your time. And the um, uh, first time I heard it told to me, the, the guy just like stretched it out forever, like 10 minutes. And when it, I just wanted to slap him, right? You're going to go home and you're going to be like, there might have been a reason he won't. No, there's no reason. I just wasted your time, right? The joke's pointless. And, and that happens, right? The reason it frustrates us is because you and I are wired to want to know the reason behind things. You and I are wired. We want to know the purpose. We want to know the point of what we're doing. That's why all throughout the week we're having a conversation with someone. We're going like, what's the point of this conversation? You're sitting in a meeting at work and you're like, what is the point of this meeting? Right? Or you're doing a task or a chore and you're thinking, what is the reasoning behind this? We want to know the point. We want to know the purpose. And when we don't know the point of a meeting or a conversation or a task or the joke doesn't have a point, we get frustrated. We get mad. But what about when it comes to our pain, our suffering, our heartache? Does that have a point? Does that have a purpose? There's a home health nurses that come in and help take care of my daughter, Sanders, after her heart transplant. You know, one of them, her name is Jalene. She just got back from a weekend trip to Florida, so she went home to bury a family member. And she said, Destin, while I was there, my brother-in-law unexpectedly died. And then she said, the very next day, I had another family member had to rush her to the ICU because her, her throat kind of collapsed. And here she is in my house, right, and telling me all this. And I'm wondering, does her pain have a point? There's a man that I know, his wife has cancer and they go in this past week and they're going to operate and to remove the cancer. When they get in there, they see that the cancer is spread and they said, nope, we're not going to do it. Does, does that couple's pain have a point? In student ministry, I've heard these past couple weeks, right, we've got students who are struggling with homosexuality, students who are cutting, students who have been caught vaping, students who have had suicidal thoughts to the point that they've been placed in treatment facilities. And I've sat in the office with their parents and watched them cry and agonize. And I wonder, does their pain have a point? Or are we just supposed to sit silently and suffer through it all? See, today as we wrap up this entire Genesis series, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. And I hope to answer two questions. Number one, does our pain have a point or is it just meaningless? And if it does have a point, if it does have a purpose, what is it? What is it? So when it comes down to figuring out, does our pain have a point? Does our pain have a purpose? I think what it really goes to is who or what is in control of your life. <clears throat> See, if ease and if comfort, if that's what controls us, then pain has no place. <clears throat> if it's happiness, if it's just joy and narcissism, pain has no place. Or maybe it's money, power. Success and fame, we go, okay, pain has a little bit of place. I gotta work hard, I gotta put some effort in, but eventually I'm gonna get to a place where I don't want any pain. But now, if those things are in control of our life, that's idolatry. 
It is God and God alone who is and who should be in control. And scripture goes on and on throughout the Bible telling us about this, reminding us that God is the one who is in control. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The heart of man plans his ways, but it's the Lord who establishes his steps. I know that God can do all things, that no purpose of his can be thwarted. Who has spoken and it has come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Because God is in control, your pain and my pain can have a purpose. And here's what I like to think about, right? My wife and I, we used to watch this old TV show on the Food Network called Chopped. And so it's an interesting show. They bring in these chefs from all over the place, and they have them make an appetizer, an entree, a dessert. And every round, they kind of chop someone whose dish isn't good enough. But the interesting thing about the show is when they step up to make their entree, appetizer, dessert, they open this basket, and there's all these random ingredients they have to use along with this entire kitchen. And so usually what happens on the show is they get to the dessert round, and the two best chefs are sitting there, and they open their basket to make a dessert. And what do they have to incorporate? And it's a rattlesnake, cream cheese, ketchup, and a kiwi, right? And they're like, oh, you have to make something delicious out of that. And it's just funny to watch them struggle. But what I, what I loved, what I remember about that show is, in the hands of a master chef, even the worst ingredients have a place and find purpose in the dish. And in the hands of a good and perfect God, even the worst situations in your life find a place and have a purpose. This is so evident in the life of Joseph. What I want to go through and show you are some of the pain and the heartache, the sin and the evil choices that men have had, but that God used as the master chef making an incredible dish. God used Jacob's romantic preference of Rachel and his paternally insensitive favoritism of Joseph. God used his brother's jealousy God used Joseph's brother's evil, murderous, greedy betrayal of Joseph. God used the existence of an evil slave trade that existed at that time. God used Potiphar's complicity with the slave trade. God used Potiphar's wife's sexual immorality. God used Potiphar's wife's dishonesty. God used Potiphar's unjust judgment of Joseph. God used Joseph's wrongful prisoning sentence. And God used the imprisonment of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. God used the cupbearer, failing to remember Joseph for two years. God used the inability of Pharaoh's counselor to discern Pharaoh's dream. God used Pharaoh being desperate enough to listen to a Hebrew prisoner. God even used seven years of famine, resulting in the prosperity of Egypt under the supervision of Joseph and the suffering of all the surrounding people. God used the threat of starvation that caused terrible fear and moved Jacob to send his sons to Egypt. For grain. You talk about being in control. God is flexing his sovereignty muscles in the story of Joseph. There's all the little things that have to happen in just such a precise way to get the end result, much less 
all the evil and the sin and the wickedness and the pain and the hurt. God uses every single one of them to weave a masterful redeeming plan. And so what he does is God fulfills the problem, a promise, prophecy he made to Abraham. In Genesis 15 it says, <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. They will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with a great possession. God used all that to accomplish this. Also, God saved the lineage of Jesus Christ through all the wickedness and sin we see in Genesis. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, and Judah has Perez, and on and on and on and on until we get to Jesus Christ. God, in the midst of all this, still used it to accomplish something amazing. So we see that God uses the wicked, evil, free choices of mankind. God uses our pain, our suffering, and our heartache to accomplish his good and perfect plan. God is in complete control. And because God is in control, our pain can actually have a purpose. What purpose is that? What purpose could our pain actually have? I want us to continue looking at the life of Joseph. I'm going to summarize Genesis 42 through 44 for you. And then we'll pick up and we'll read together in Genesis 45. But be thinking about, what do I see in Joseph? How is God using evil and actually accomplishing good with it? So what happens in Genesis 42, the famine has happened. Seven years of famine in the land. Jacob and Joseph's 12 brothers, Jacob his father and his 12 brothers, they're in Cana. Famine has spread that far that they don't even have food to eat. They're threatened. They may die of starvation. And so Jacob says, Boys, it's time to go to Egypt. I've heard they got food there. Go, secure for us grain. And so the brothers go. They leave one brother at home. His name's Benjamin. He's the youngest. He's one of two children of Rachel, the wife that Jacob really loved, Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin stays back. The other brothers go. They show up in Egypt, and Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. His brothers have no clue that it's Joseph. And so Joseph kind of starts this game and shit, kind of testing them a little bit. And he accuses them. He says, you're spies. You've come to see our land. They're like, no, we're not spies. He says, prove it to me. And they start talking about their home. They're like, our dad, Jacob, and our son, Benjamin, they're back home. And Joseph goes, okay. If you're telling the truth, go home and get Benjamin. Bring him to me, and I'll let you live. If you're lying, I'll kill you. <clears throat> so he loads them up with grain. Joseph even tells his servants, Put their money back in their pack. Don't let them know about it. And so they get home and they tell Jacob what happened. And Jacob's distraught. You told them about Benjamin? And then they're opening their grain. And there's their money bags. They've been set up. They've been framed. But they just kind of stay in Canaan. And then all the while, Joseph kept one of the brothers, Simeon, he kept them in Egypt. And it wasn't until all their grain ran out that they're like, well, we're about to starve to death again. I guess we'll go back to Egypt and get Simeon. And so they head back to Egypt. This time they bring Benjamin for, for fear of their life. And Jacob says, okay, you can bring Benjamin, but, but take some honey and take some butter and take some balm and take double portions of money. Like we're going to bribe this guy to get what we want, get what we need. And so they show up and Joseph's like, keep the money. Come in, let's have a party. Let's have a feast together. 
And so they're standing there and they feast and he packs up their bags and sends them on their way again. This time he whispers one of the servants, put my silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And so the guards go and they overtake him as they're heading home and they look and they see, oh, there's Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They bring him back to Joseph and Joseph says, you all can go. Just the one who's my cup, he's staying with me. He's going to be my slave. It's testimony. So many years ago, they were so willing to sell one of their brothers into slavery. Have they changed? And Judah, the one through the lineage of Christ, he steps in and says, I'll be a substitute. I'll stand in the place. We cannot go home without Benjamin. And so at that moment, Joseph just wells up with emotion, and he comes out and reveals to them who he is. That's where we pick up in Genesis 45, verse 1. <coughs> then Joseph could not control himself. Before all who stood by him, he cried, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the house of the Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land two years, and there are yet five in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says the son Joseph, God has made me lord of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household, all that you have, do not come to poverty. As we read that, as we listen to that, we see that because God is in control, our pain can produce in us maturity. Man, we think about Joseph, everything that he's gone through, right? The arrogant, kind of bragging guy. Now his faith is tested and he has perseverance. And now his brothers who sold him into slavery are standing before him. And he's got the power and he's got the authority and he could bring out fury on them and cast his vengeance. But what does he do? He shows maturity. He shows restraint. Because Joseph, in his pain, has been produced empathy by God. Joseph knows what it's like to be hated by his brothers. He knows what it's like to be sold into slavery. He knows what it's like to spend years in prison. And instead of giving them what they deserve, he gives them grace. He said, go get your families and come to my best land and live here. Remarkable, remarkable picture. Remarkable maturity. Because God is in control, our pain can build skills in us we would never have. See, Joseph was a Hebrew, and he was sold to Potiphar's house. He was a slave. He was a servant. Do the dusting. Do the mopping. That's all he did at the house. But then we see in the text that Joseph is put over the entire household of Potiphar. 
It says in the scripture that Potiphar, the only thing he worried about was what kind of food he was going to eat. And so what that tells me is this, that Joseph, in the midst of pain and suffering of slavery, learned the Egyptian language. He would have to, to be put in charge of the house, to keep the books, to do all the transactions. And instead of having this victim mindset and this poor, pitiful me, God uses the pain in Joseph's life to build skill. And because God is in control, not only did he build skill in Joseph, but he gave Joseph the experience he needed to succeed. What he did in Potiphar's house was incredible. He was put in charge of the land. He was put in charge of all the transactions. It was a microcosm of what God would use him for to save Egypt. And so he trained up under them. And because God is in control, in the midst of our pain, God can be glorified. Every time Joseph goes to interpret a dream, he says, the ability to interpret dreams is God's alone. Joseph had every right, two years in prison, to be like, it's all my ability, get me out of here. But he wasn't. He pointed to God. He named his children. One child he named, God has gotten rid of my affliction. Another child he named, God has given me fruit in the midst of my affliction. Even in his children's names, he was glorifying God. When he reveals himself to his brothers, he goes, God sent me here. God made me ruler. God kept me to preserve. Incredible. And because of our pain, God can truly redeem all the evil and the bad and the hurt because God is in control. We see this, right? That Joseph's life, all those wicked and evil choices, they were used to save who knows how many people. At the most climactic verse in all Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph is speaking to his brothers, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The word good is the same word that's used in the creation account when God says, and he made it, and he saw it, and it was good, and it was good. It's a word that means as God intended. Even when his brothers meant evil, it was as God intended. God was going to use the pain because he's in control to bring about an incredible plan and story of redemption. So we know that God can redeem any situation. There's no sin that cannot be cleansed. There's no hurt that cannot be healed. There's no relationship that cannot be restored. There's no soul that cannot be saved. God is a redeemer. The ultimate example of this is in the cross. One of the most awful deaths and execution on a criminal's cross imaginable. The excruciating pain, but because God is in control, he used that pain to accomplish so much good. What we think is bad for us may actually be the best for us. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, if I should lose all that I have, then it is better that I should lose than have. If God so wills, the worst calamity is the wisest and kindest thing that could befall me if God ordains. Now I'm here today until talking about this message that God is in control. And in no way am I trying to make light of the pain you might be feeling. Pain is meant to sting. It's meant to hurt. It's meant to almost crush you. We, we look in Joseph's story, jealousy stinks, and betrayal stinks, and slavery is awful, and 
two years in prison is terrible. Joseph doesn't make light of that. He's not running around being like, God's got this, it's all good, right? Pain hurts and is supposed to. And when God's in control, that doesn't mean we hurt less. It means that our pain is not in vain. And that our tears are not wasted. And whatever evil has happened, God can use it for good. The nurse, Jolene, who takes care of my daughter, Sanders. Sanders had a heart transplant. We have nurses who come in. She had gone and she had had all those bad things happen that weekend. She comes back into our house and she holds Sanders. And she goes, Sanders, you know God's in control. And as a Christian, that's what we know, right? It's not that we have less hurt. It's that we have more hope. And then in the midst of evil and wickedness, God can use it for good because he is in control. Let me pray over us. And Ron will come lead us in communion. Thank you, God, for who you are, for your sovereignty. Lord, when I came across that sentence by Spurgeon, it was one of the most hardest sentences to ever swallow. That the worst calamity could be for my best if it comes from you. But God, thank you for the testimony of the men in Nehemiah who stand here and say, it is their pain that you used for their good. Thank you for the story of Joseph. We see the pain that you used for good. And so God, we don't want to make light of anybody's pain. Knowing that you're in control, it doesn't make cancer easier. It doesn't make divorce fun. It doesn't make losing a family member palatable. God, but I pray that in the midst of it all, it would provide us with the hope that we can continue going on. We continue trusting that you are there, that you're aware, and that you care. And that ultimately, God, you're using even the wicked choices of men to bring ultimate good and glory to you. We love you, God. We thank you. That's why we worship and pray and come to church and celebrate your goodness. And it's in your name we pray.